All right. And then when you are done greeting, go ahead and have a seat. I know we keep you on your toes. Sometimes we read the scripture together. Sometimes we don't. We like to keep things fresh here. You guys, I am so excited for today's talk because we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that we normally just skip over when we come to it in our Bibles. And I'm right there with you. Uh, we're going to look at a genealogy from the book of Matthew today. Did somebody just say yes out there? That is quite disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys are very excited. That's awesome. Um, but we're in our series, uh, Our World Needs Christmas, where we're talking about how Christmas is a window of opportunity for us as followers of Jesus in this world. That this is a time of year where people are more sensitive to this reality of Jesus Christ being given to us. The, the gift of Jesus is actually something that you hear in songs, something that um, is, is portrayed on cards that you're going to receive in the mail from people who don't even believe in him. It's really this incredible opportunity for us to speak some truth into the world that we live in. And so today I want to talk about the idea of welcome at Christmas time. And I had this really interesting thing happen to me this week. I was grocery shopping, which already had put me into a terrible mood because uh, anytime you go outside of your home this time of year, you're just inundated with people um, in the general spirit of uh, a holiday annoyance. And so, you know, we get out uh, out to the car. I'm, I'm with Rosie, and uh, we're, dry, we're in the cart going out to the car, and uh, it's pitch dark outside because it was 3 p.m., and uh, this lady comes up to us, and this is actually something that happens a lot, where she says, oh my gosh, what a beautiful baby, and she like shoves me out of the way, and she's like getting in Rosie's face, like, oh, so excited, so I'm standing there like freezing and like wanting to get the baby in the car and get home, and you know, but we start up this conversation, and it was nice, and at the end, I say, hey, Merry Christmas, and she says back to me, Merry Christmas, she turns to walk away, and then she whips back around and says, oh, and happy holidays, too, and I was just so taken aback by that. And look, I don't care. I do not care if people say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. We're not one of those churches that's going to make a big deal out of that. But I thought it was so weird because I was asking the question, who was that for? I said Merry Christmas. You said Merry Christmas. And then you wanted to add in just so you didn't offend who? Rosie? She celebrates Christmas. It was just this really weird moment. And it got me thinking about the general spirit of welcome and acceptance and inclusivity that we seem to have this time of year, which I don't know if you've noticed is not really something that people tend to have most of the time. And so, you know, again, it's not about Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. It's about this kind of idea that this is a moment where we get to actually invite people into our lives, where we get to kind of let the barriers down a little bit. And I just love that that lady who I didn't even know and didn't even really want to be talking to, that she was so sensitive that she just wanted to make me feel included, even though I was one who wished, wished her Merry Christmas in the first place. And so here's what I want to challenge us with, Christians, is that when it comes to acceptance and love and welcome at Christmas time, we actually don't need to downplay the Christmasness of Christmas to get there. That's what we're going to look at today. Here's my big idea. At Christmas, God welcomes the unexpected. Christmas is a holiday, a story in our Bibles that points to the welcome of God to unexpected people. You see it all over the place. Jesus, first and foremost, he comes as a poor baby in a dirty animal's feeding trough. He doesn't come as some sort of conquering angelic hero like people might expect. 
the first worshipers who come to greet Jesus, as Dave showed us last week in the book of Luke, they are not kings or rich people bearing gifts. The first people to come to worship Jesus are poor shepherds who have nothing to offer him in the first place. They just come to kind of look at the baby. And then when the rich people do show up, notice that it's not anybody from Israel, but it's, it's these wise men from far off lands who find out about Jesus, how? Because they're astrologers and they see a star in the sky. That's something that is actually forbidden in the Old Testament law, and that's how they found Jesus. Nobody, none of the rich people in his own country, but people from far off who didn't even worship their God. And then finally, when the king of Israel, Herod, finds out about Jesus being born, he doesn't go to worship him. He actually puts out an order to slaughter Jesus and all the other innocent young babies that are born that night. And so Jesus and his family end up, the very first thing that he does is fleeing to Egypt all of them as political refugees to escape King Herod's wrath and order of his execution. You see, the Christmas story points us in this, this direction that it's in this moment that God makes a, a remarkable statement of welcome and acceptance to people that everybody else would have thought were outside of who God was going to bring in. That's what we're going to see today, but we're not going to look at any of those passages to see it. Today, I want to look at an interesting passage from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and it is, as I mentioned before, a genealogy. Now, you may know if you're if you have uh, read the Bible at all, the genealogies are essentially just lists of names. These are the things that in the Old Testament you'll have, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so on and so forth. And really, like I said, these are the things that we skip over. And I don't blame you because if you don't have the context for it, it just doesn't really mean anything to you. I, in fact, if I was reading through this, I would skip over it too because I don't really need to rehearse all those names. I just need the bullet points. So let's look at the genealogy together. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so right out of the gate, Matthew, who's writing this story, wants to link together this person, Jesus Christ, who the whole book is going to be about to some really key people in history. He links him up to David and to Abraham. And then as you go through this next section here, which I've made nice and small to save you the trouble of reading through it, because we're, we're really not going to read it at all, essentially what you have here is just name after name after name after name of all these different people that are in this family tree, leading from Abraham through David up to Jesus Christ. In the first section here, he starts with Abraham, and he gets all the way to David the king. Then he goes from David all the way up until the, the Jewish people are deported to Babylon. Then he goes from that moment when they're taken away to Babylon all the way up to Jesus Christ. And then he summarizes it all in verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So he's talking about this first stanza here saying 14 people, 14 generations here. Then from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. So another one. And then from the de deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there we have 14, 14, and 14, which is somewhat interesting. Here's what's going on here. Why does Matthew start his story this way? I mean, think about it. If you were given the task of sharing the message of Jesus Christ with somebody, if somebody told you even, you now have the responsibility to tell a story that is going to so engage someone, so convince them of who Jesus is, that they're going to make a decision to follow him. Would you start by saying, well, let me rehearse all the minutia of the history of the Old Testament with all these individual names of people that you've never heard of? No, you wouldn't. It's not the way that we would start the story. Why does Matthew start the story this way? Well, genealogies were actually very common in Jesus' culture. It was the normal way to establish someone's identity and pedigree in that time. 
you were a great man or a great person, you would try to convince people of that by naming all these people who came in your family tree. These days, we do it very differently. These days, we would talk about our accomplishments or our jobs or maybe, you know, the places we've been or the big, you know, things that we've, that we've done in our past. But in their culture, you talked about the people that you came from. That's how you establish that you are an important person, a significant person. And so Matthew, telling this story about someone who he did consider to be quite significant, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he lays out his pedigree, his family history. But what's interesting about genealogies is that they were always selective. Every single time somebody went to tell the genealogy story, they would leave people out. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing here. Matthew leaves people out. You can go back and look in the Old Testament at the other genealogies, and you'll notice there are a lot more than 14 generations between these different people that he's talking about. So why 14? Well, it has something to do with the significance of numbers. 14 in half is 7, which is the number of completion. And so you have 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7. You've got all these 7s leading up to the final 7, Jesus Christ, who's the completion of all the story of the Old Testament. So that's partially why he's being selective. But here's the thing. We're not even going to talk about that. We're going to talk about something else. If Matthew is being selective, if he's leaving people out of the story, then you have to ask, why does he include the people that he does? Let me make this a little easier to visualize here. Here's all the names that Matthew lists out as he leads from going from Abraham all the way up to Jesus Christ. In this list are people that if you were trying to impress people, you would leave them out of your story. You know, King Herod actually did this. He was a you know, famous builder and built all these public works, and he put his genealogy, his family history on all these things, and he would take out all the embarrassing people. All the really, you know, lame rulers in his line or all the people who didn't do well or had big scandals in their lives. He would leave them out and he would kind of, you know, uh, groom his history to just include the people that he wants to. Matthew does almost the exact opposite with Jesus. Remember, he's leaving names out, but look at the names that he includes. He includes Rehoboam and uh, Manasseh. And, and just to give you two examples here, these two guys were evil kings of Israel who forbid their people from worshiping the true God and commanded them to bow down to idols and, and to worship those idols in some really debauched and wicked ways. You would think that if Matthew's trying to get down to the 14s, he would cut those guys out and leave in some other more virtuous people, but he doesn't. But here's the other thing. What's actually more interesting than what Matthew leaves in are some names that Matthew inserts in that have no business being in Jesus' genealogy in the first place. These are the names that I want to talk about today. These four names in red here are names that it makes absolutely no sense. Even if Matthew was trying to write the complete genealogy of Jesus, they still wouldn't be in the list. Number one, Tamar. Tamar was a woman who uh, was cheated by her father-in-law, um, and so she seduced him pretending to be a prostitute in order to force him to do right by her. This is the moment where we're all happy that we released the kids before we jumped into this today. Uh, number two, Rahab was a prostitute who aided the Jewish spies in escaping the city of Jericho when the king of Jericho was trying to find them and execute them. Number three, Ruth was a, a widow who lost everything and was rescued from her poverty when she married a rich man, Boaz. And then number four is someone called Uriah's wife. In the story. And we'll talk about why she doesn't get her first name in there, which is Bathsheba. 
But you may know the story there. Bathsheba was someone who, uh, who King David had an affair with in, in the Old Testament. And so I want to look at these four names, these four inclusions in the genealogy of Jesus that don't belong there, and to ask the question, why? What are we meant to learn about Jesus Christ, about that baby in the manger, from the inclusion of these four people in his family tree? These four women have three, th- uh, three things in common. First is that they're women. The second is that they're foreigners. And the third is that they're sinners. Their, their lives were surrounded by an air of scandal. Number one, we're going to talk about how these people were women. Jesus has women in his genealogy. And that may not sound super unexpected to us because, of course, Jesus has women in his family tree. That's kind of by definition. You have women in your family tree. And yet, when in Jesus' culture, when you sat down to do your genealogy, the, the rights of, of um, your legal rights went through the male heir. Your family name went through the male heir. There was no reason to include women. In fact, it was even worse than that. Women were considered second-class citizens in the culture into which Jesus was born. And so to include women in your family tree was not only something that you just didn't really do out of you know, necessity, but actually was something that would be somewhat embarrassing. Think about it this way. If you were one of those early Christians and you had in your, you know, in your language the gospel of Matthew and you start to read through the, the story of the Son of God and you notice that Matthew's included these women, you might feel like that's embarrassing, Matthew. Why would you do that? That's not, those aren't the kind of people that you include in your genealogy. Here's to kind of modernize it a little bit. I uh, once, uh, I know someone who um, once answered the question on a job application, um, why do you want to work here? He typed into the little, you know, field underneath that, I don't, I just need a job. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing, that, that's the truth, right? He was, we were college students, and he was just trying to get a job. He was not passionate about working at Taco Bell. You know, he just, he needed a job, so he just put in there, I don't really want this particular job. I just need a job, so if you could hook me up with a job, that would be great. And yet, that's not how we do things, right? The guy who read that job application probably could have understood that this college student didn't really particularly want this job and that that was the truth, and yet what he wanted to hear was, I just really love the mission of Taco Bell, and I really connect with, you know, what they do in the community, and that, those kind of things. You, you see, it's the same kind of thing here. Matthew is going outside the form. He's not, in, he's not telling the genealogy the way that it's supposed to be told. He's including something in there that is true, but that doesn't belong in the story the way that it's supposed to be told. The inclusion of these four women, I believe, is first and foremost to show us that God prioritizes the powerless. I want you to sit with that phrasing for a moment here. God prioritizes the powerless. And the reason is that this is one point, if I can just be honest with you, this is one point that whenever I teach on it or whenever I preach on it gets the most pushback out of anything that I've ever said and, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a, you know, crazy prophetic, like going to say wild and crazy things up here, but I do kind of try to push you a little bit. I try to push the envelope. I try to put things out there and say them clearly and starkly. And yet this is the very concept that really riles people up. We hate this idea. Something in us is just predisposed to find this offensive or maybe threatening to us, or maybe just kind of upside down, outside of the way that the world normally works. But I want to challenge you, 
try as you might, you will not be able to disprove this idea biblically. You go and you read the whole Bible, you go and you do your research, and you will find that time and time again, God prioritizes the powerless. Those are his people. Those are the ones that he seeks out. And so I'm not against it. You know, send me the email if you have trouble with this. But really, I challenge you, try to disprove this. Try to find a way to to find your way out of this. I wish I could, but I can't. Let me give you an example of this. Take the Apostle Paul. You remember the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians, and he had this experience on the Emmaus Road where he met the risen Lord Jesus and had his life completely changed around. He went from persecuting Christians from trying to throw them in jail, even some of them trying to put them to death, instead to trying to be a missionary for the Christian faith. And there's this moment that he recalls in one of his letters, the letter to the Galatians, where he talks about when he first got the commission to go out and preach the gospel. This is what he says in verse 9. When James and Peter and John... These early leaders, the apostles of Jesus Christ, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So pause right there. Here we have this moment where these, these people who Paul calls pillars, they are pillars of the Christian church. They are pillars of the faith. They are, they are these strong leaders. And then we have Paul and Barnabas. Paul, this upstart, fiery, you know, life changed, ready to go and spread the good news. They come together and they split up the plan, right? They say, we're going to go to the Jewish people. We're going to preach the gospel to them. And you're going to go to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. You're going to preach the gospel to them. They're getting ready to do something that is so significant in the history of the church, to take the gospel outside of the original people who received it, to preach it to all the nations, to begin to to build the church that will lead to a moment like this, where we find ourselves in this room. We cannot underplay, um, underestimate the significance of this moment. And yet, there's also verse 10. He says, only they asked us, James and Peter and John asked Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. You know, this, this passage always surprises me, and it really, it says something about how I'm all twisted up inside, because when I read this, it is shocking to me, this notion that they're talking about going to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins to the nations, then starting the mission of God in this world, and yet in that very moment, the leaders of the church say, you can go do that as long as you remember, as you preach the gospel, as you preach the forgiveness of sins, that you remember God's special concern for the poor. And Paul says, of course I will. That's the very thing I was eager to do also. It's incredible. From the very beginning, the mission of God has been about saving sinners and preaching good news to the poor. Paul explains actually why this was so central to his theology in another letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, God chose those whom the world considers foolish to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose the puny and powerless to shame the high and mighty. He chose the lowly, the laughable in the world's eyes, nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. You might kind of think, who's Paul talking about here? Who is Paul talking about? Who are the nobodies? Who are the puny and the powerless, the laughable in the world's eyes, the nobodies? And maybe even people who come to mind are people like the women in this genealogy, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, people who 
by every, by the world's wisdom, would have been considered disqualified from serving the kingdom of God. And I think that's partially what Paul means, but maybe there's somebody else that he's referring to as well. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you see this, that when God chooses to become a man, he chooses to become a poor man. He doesn't come as a king. He doesn't come as anyone with power. He comes as a poor child of two poor people, a baby laid in a manger because his parents couldn't afford a proper bed. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he has eternally existed as the richest most powerful, most majestic being you could possibly imagine. In fact, even more so than you could possibly imagine. The riches and the majesty and the ownership of our God over this world is so much more than our minds could even wrap around. And yet that God chose to come into this world and not to come as a conquering hero, not to come as a king on a throne, not to come as some grand vision in the sky, but to come as a baby in a manger. God prioritizes the powerless so much so that he became one of them. Now, this doesn't mean that God loves the poor or powerless more than the rich and powerful. Of course, it doesn't mean that. But the Bible is emphatic that the poor and the powerless are God's special priority. And so I ask you today, why aren't they ours? Why do we prioritize the rich and the powerful? The good-looking people, the clean people, the kind people, the gentle people. Why don't we prioritize those who Jesus prioritized? Jesus has women in his genealogy to show us that he has a special concern for those on the margins of society. But it's not only that. Jesus also has foreigners in his genealogy. None of the women mentioned here were Israelites, which is really interesting. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Tamar's nationality is the only one that's a little bit fuzzy, but tradition tells us that she also was a Canaanite as well. And so either three out of four or four out of four of these women are foreigners to the people of Israel. And this is really significant because it takes us back to the original calling of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, God comes to a man named Abraham and says that he's going to turn him into this great nation, which becomes the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And these people are called to be a blessing to the world that they live in. And God says, in order to do that, in order to bless all the nations and to reveal myself to them, I'm going to put a special blessing on you. And this special blessing means that you're going to prosper in everything that you do, that you're going to have you know, people, uh, descendants that are more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach, than the stars in the sky, and that those who bless you, then I'm going to bless them too. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse them. This is unlike anything before. And all of it, hear this, was for the purpose that the nation of Israel could bless the world with what God had given to them. Instead, you read the Old Testament and you see a very different story. From there on, the, the nation of Israel, all of God's people are prone not to bless others, but instead to hoard that blessing to themselves to try to keep people away from God. They're given this vision in the Old Testament prophets of, of the, the nations of the world streaming into Jerusalem to worship the one God together. But they reject that idea. They build their walls higher. They don't let people come into the temple to worship God. And God never told them to do that. In fact, he told them to let everyone come to be with him. You see, it was such a powerful belief 
that when Jesus was born, the expectation among the Jewish people was that the Messiah, when he came, he was going to come as like a national hero. He was going to come and he was going to crush all the other nations. First of all, he was going to send Rome packing so that they could have their land back. But then all the other tribes and all the other peoples around them, he was going to destroy them. He was going to light their cities on fire. He was going to lay them in the dust. And then finally, the Jewish people would be elevated to be lords of all creation. And instead, something very different happens. Instead, Jesus comes humble. He comes weak as a baby, not conquering, not waging war. And as if to twist the knife just a little bit, Matthew starts this story about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, you know what? In his line, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the promised anointed deliverer of Israel descends from four foreign women. The point here is that God seeks out the stranger. Why does Jesus have foreigners in his genealogy? Because he wants you to know that he is all about those who are outside of the family. The people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament are repeatedly commanded to welcome strangers into their community. And this kind of cross-cultural, costly hospitality is a key feature of the way that God calls us to as his people. Time and time again, he elevates this as this is how, in one way, this is one way that I want you to change the world that you live in welcoming people in who naturally belong on the outside. And all of this is based in our understanding of God. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it was really a game changer for me when I realized God is a stranger to us. In fact, the whole Old Testament over and over again tries to convince us of that very fact, that God is very different from us, that we are created and we're limited and we can only do so much. We get tired, we have to rest, we get hungry, we have to eat, whereas God doesn't need anything. God is eternal. He's omnipotent. He can work and work and do whatever he wants forever and ever, and he'll never get tired. He'll never get hungry. He'll never have to rest. We are different from God. And then as if to make things even worse, I mean, that's just the way that we were created, but we have made ourselves even more different from God by choosing to rebel against him. Because of sin, we are much more different from God. We cannot know God as our Father apart from the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so God is a stranger. He is separated from us. But in Jesus, that God who is so very different becomes one of us. He welcomes us into his family, even though we are naturally strangers. And not just strangers, but enemies of him. God seeks out the stranger. And then third, and finally, Jesus, he has women in his genealogy, he has foreigners in his genealogy, and he has scandals in his genealogy. The women mentioned in this list include a prostitute and a woman who seduced her father-in-law. Talk about dysfunctional families. But the last name that is brought up here is actually the most scandalous. I mentioned that Matthew calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. There's actually a couple different opinions on why he does that. Some people think that uh, this is because Matthew was so scandalized by the story that he couldn't call her by name, and so he makes it a little less personal and calls her the wife of Uriah. But I think there's something a little different going on here. I think that Matthew is not actually trying to shame Bathsheba, but he's actually trying, in some ways, to shame King David, the other side of that equation. You see, when when he calls this out as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, we're meant to remember exactly who Uriah was. A lot of people don't realize this. I didn't until I was studying for this sermon. Uriah is actually one of the people who's named as one of David's mighty men in the Old Testament. 
that absolutely blew my mind. You, you might know the story that when King David was told by God that he was going to be the next king of Israel, that made the current king of Israel very angry, a guy named King Saul. And King Saul made him basically a fugitive, chased him around, and he had to hide in caves. But there were a few people who came to fight alongside David, and they were called David's mighty men. They went and they followed David and they fought battles with him and they really put their own lives on the line for David. And one of the people mentioned is a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Now, years later, after David has ascended to the throne in Israel, after King Saul is long gone, one day Uriah is out fighting David's battles. He's out with the army fighting battles on the, on the, uh, the forefront of the war and David is back home in his cushy, comfortable, posh, palatial residence and he goes up on the roof and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof you may know the story from there that David wanted her in fact David called for her and when he found out that it was Uriah's wife or maybe he knew it all along he started a secret affair with Bathsheba and he did something really truly despicable he sent Uriah to the front lines of the war and he secretly commanded all the men standing around Uriah when the, when the soldiers came, when the enemy came up against them, that they were all to stand back and let Uriah be slaughtered. This moment, this story, I mean, you can feel it even as we tell it. And we are generations removed and cultures removed. We're on the other side of the world, and yet it still hits us like, oh, that's terrible. Now imagine that's your family history. Imagine that's your people. Matthew here is bringing up one of the most shameful, disgusting, just taboo events in the history of Israel. And he is saying, if you want to know who Jesus Christ is, you should know that that scandal is in his family history. In fact, if, if Jesus' family line comes through Bathsheba, then Jesus wouldn't be who he is without that disgusting, disdainful moment happening in his past. Here's the point that I think is being made here. God solely saves sinners. And that's not more sweeping. That's not an overstatement. That, that, that is precisely correct. God solely, only, exclusively saves sinners. You might say, well, of course that's true because everyone's a sinner, and that's also true, but what this really means is that only those who know they are sinners, only those who know that they are fallen, who know that the darkness of their own hearts, only those people will be saved by God because only they will see their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. It's often been remarked, I didn't make this up, that Christianity is the only religion that teaches only bad people go to heaven. Do you see that? God only saves sinners. He solely saves sinners. Only bad people go to heaven. Anyone who thinks that they are good is, first of all, wrong. And second, they will never accept Jesus Christ because they won't see any reason to. God only, solely, exclusively saves sinners. And I think one, of the, one reason that Matthew includes these names is because of how similar they are to Jesus' own story. You see, there's four women in the genealogy, but there's actually a fifth at the very end, and her name's Mary, Jesus' mother. You know the story because it's on our minds. It's, it's very much in our heads at this time of year. Mary was a virgin who gave birth to a baby boy. And I know that some of you every single year have trouble with this part of the story. A virgin gets pregnant. 
And then when it comes to light, when she gets caught, the excuse is, it was God. I don't know. It just happened, you know. An angel came to me. Like, that's, that's kind of the subtext. Every single year we have this little story, and if you had to explain it to somebody else outside of the Christian faith, you might be a little embarrassed by it because it seems like a real weird cover-up for something salacious that happened in the first century. And yet, here's what I want to say. This isn't a new thing. Matthew, writing this story, he personally would have known people who came to him and said, Matthew, you cannot believe this story. You are telling me that your God is the illegitimate child of a so-called virgin who claimed that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Really? Really? Matthew knew this. This was one of the biggest objections to the story of the Christians in the very first centuries. And so Matthew writes this story with an awareness of just how hard to believe that may be. Matthew knew this line of reasoning, and he gives four examples of women who dealt with similar kinds of accusations, similar kinds of stigma, similar kinds of of having this, this disgusting air of scandal attached to them. He gives four examples and says, Jesus is just the last in a long line. In fact, three of those women in the story actually verifiably did wicked things, but one of them did not. Ruth. Ruth is in the story, and she, you go read the book of Ruth, there's nothing salacious there. She acts honorably. She does everything the way that she should. But you know what, you know what happened with Ruth? Ruth was a poor woman who married a rich man, and so there come the rumors and the cloud of suspicion, so much so that even today, so-called biblical scholars will tell you that there was something underhanded going on between Ruth and Boaz. Jesus is born into this world under the cloud of scandal, even though he didn't deserve it, even though there was no truth to the rumors. Jesus comes into this world stinking of scandal. Do you see that? Can you imagine growing up as Jesus? Can you imagine being in Mary's shoes? Can you imagine being in Joseph's? Everyone thinks you're either a fool or a liar or a, or a cheat or that you're trying to cover things up. Everyone thinks that you have this family secret that nobody can talk about. Nobody believes you. That's the life that Jesus was born into. And I think that one message that he may have for us, Jesus' encouragement here to anyone who deals with having their character slandered or assassinated or dragged through the dirt, whether because of something you did or something you did not do, Jesus' message to you today, hear him, I have been there too. My name has been dragged through the mud. My reputation has been called into question. And you know what? Jesus took that bad name. Jesus took that scandal onto himself so that you and I can live free from those things. Whether there's something in your past that you feel great shame and guilt for, Jesus has set you free. Whether there's something in your life, some unresolved tension, some lies or rumors that have been spread about you, you can live free from that because Jesus Christ has taken that for you. Let me give you some points of application here. I have three questions for this Christmas based on this passage. Number one is who is welcome in your life? I usually use the word hospitality for this. 
this, but I think it, it, that can kind of lead us down some weird roads because hospitality is one of those words that just is kind of stretched out of shape from overuse, right? We talk about hospitality and you can kind of think of like southern hospitality or the hospitality industry with like hotels and restaurants. Or, you know, in churches, we talk about hospitality as like putting cookies out on a table when people <laughs> come into the room. You know, that's hospitality. And so it's just this word that has been so overused that it really doesn't have any meaning. But this is really interesting. Hospitality, the word in English comes from two different roots. You can kind of see it in the way that the word's laid out there. Hospitality comes from the word for host. So it's like playing host to someone. But it also, the same root is the word where we get the word hostile. See, hospitality, the original idea was that you are playing host to someone who is actually naturally hostile to you and that you'd be hostile to them. That's the idea of hospitality. It's not throwing a party for people that you already like and get along with. It's breaking down a barrier to welcome someone in who doesn't belong in your life. The Bible points us in this direction. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we may not have heard that said, but that certainly is the way of the world. You love your neighbor, you love those who love you, and you hate your enemy, those who hate you. But I say to you, Jesus says to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I think what Jesus invites us into here is a different vision of hospitality for us, for our lives, that can truly have an impact on this world. Let me give you three kind of sub-points here. True hospitality welcomes people who, number one, have nothing to offer you. True hospitality is not inviting someone over to your house to try to build a network that you can lean on to help yourself later on in life. It's not inviting someone into your home because you're hoping you'll get invited into their home or into their backyard so you can swim in their pool next summer. That's not hospitality. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe that's not a big deal, but it's not what Jesus calls us to. True hospitality is saying, you have absolutely nothing you could give me. I stand to gain nothing by inviting you into my life, and yet I'm going to do it anyway. Why? Because God has so welcomed me. Number two, true hospitality welcomes people who have nothing in common with you. This is really the struggle because I'm telling you, even in churches, we're so hardwired to make it like, I have to have something in common. My kids have to be on the same team or we have to watch the same TV show or we have to live in the same neighborhood. Otherwise, I can't have a relationship with this person. I can't do it. But true hospitality says, I don't care about those things. We're supposed to be people who are trying to build some common ground with other people, not to try to lean on it as some kind of crutch as if we don't have the ability to relate to people outside of our own spheres already. Hospitality is breaking down those barriers and saying, I don't care about those things. Will you come and be in my life anyway? And then number three, the really difficult one, is that true hospitality welcomes people who might even naturally be your enemy. Hospitality means there's a risk involved bringing this person into my life, into my home, sharing this moment with this person. Hospitality is meant to be risky. It's meant to be costly, at least by the vision that Jesus lays out for us. We are meant to welcome in the kind of people that Jesus talks about, not only as being in his family history, but actually in his very family. These are names that he owns, that he takes pride in, that are welcome not only in his life, but as members of his same family. Can we take those same risky steps and welcome people in? I read this article this week about the, uh, these two New York artists who uh, moved to Florida and built this enormous and extravagant dream home. I mean, it's 
absolutely gorgeous, and the, the you know, article is all about you know, the different materials that they used and the architects that they called in to consult on this and that. And then there was one line in there that said, in this whole you know, palatial residence, there are no guest rooms. Not a single guest room. And when they asked the, the uh, woman who was moving there, why are there no guest rooms? She said, who would want to bother with that? And I get it. I mean, that actually, like, uh, can we just be honest? For some of you, that's not the case. But for some of you, if you're like me, it's like, absolutely, that sounds great. Because then you've always got the excuse, don't have a guest room. Sorry, nowhere for you to stay, right? That's so typical. That's so normal. That's the way of the world. What Jesus is calling us to here is something that is abnormal. And if you're anything like me, you're sitting out there thinking of all the reasons why this couldn't work for you. Well, I've got this situation with my family, so I can't invite people into that. My my house is too small. Where would the people park? That would be my excuse, right? I can't invite people over. can't do that. And we're just too busy. We just can't do that. Can you just let the excuses go for a moment and engage with the fact that Jesus Christ, not Colin Skipper, not anybody else, Jesus Christ is calling you to open up your life to people who desperately need to find him. Will you answer the call? Number two, who is welcome in our church? I love that our church is diverse. I love that it's welcoming and humble. It's something that I'm so proud of in our church. And I love that we're truly made up of people from all different kinds of backgrounds and histories, people with unique struggles and unique situations. And yet here's the big question. Everybody wants to talk about how nice it is to be a church with a food bank and a church that has recovery programs and a church you know, that does things for the community and that serves the poor. But will we be ready when the time comes to welcome those people into our family, into our church? That takes me to the last question here. Number three, how will you welcome the unexpected? I want to remind you of our challenge to invite people to the Christmas services. So many of you have already shared that you're taking up this challenge, taking it very seriously. And I'm so proud that we're a church that actually does stuff like this, that actually engages, especially in a time where it's really difficult to do so. Um, And yet, you know, at this point, you may have already invited some people and you may have gotten some no's, whether it was like I had with somebody where I gave somebody a card and they kind of looked at me like, oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. And it was like, no, they're never going to show up. There's absolutely no way. Or if it was somebody who had a real excuse and you might be feeling like, well, I tried and it didn't really work out. I want to challenge you. Who are you going to invite now? Who's next on your list? Here's a passage that came to mind, a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, this passage is not about inviting people to church, but I think it has a really powerful application for this moment is for challenging you to invite people to Christmas. See, this passage is about Jesus Christ inviting those into his family. Jesus is the the master of the house. Jesus is the one throwing the party, and he invites everybody to come, but all the 
successful people, all the rich people, all the beautiful people have excuses. They can't come. So what does he do? He sends his servants, you and I, back out to go and bring in the rest. Those people who do not have excuses. Those people who would be delighted to come and join in the banquet. I had this moment this week that really threw me for a loop. I was, um, I got an email from Nicole, who works in our food bank, and um, she just had this idea to hand out those, those invites on Saturday, yesterday, at the food bank. And she was basically asking, you know, do, do we have enough? Can we use them for that? And it just shocked me that I didn't think about that. I mean, really, I felt like, how in the world did I miss that? I'm up here encouraging you to go invite people. I'm up here encouraging you to get those cards and to go hand them out to people. And yet it didn't occur to me that our biggest outreach every single week might be an opportunity to invite some people into our family to join us for Christmas. I needed to repent in that moment because I realized something. I realized that in my mind, the people we serve and the people we welcome were two different groups. We serve at the food bank. We send things out the door. We give them away. We try to help people out there. But then welcoming is a totally different thing. I had to repent in that moment because I realized I had built up a wall that God never intended to exist in my heart, in my circle, among God's people. And so I'm challenging you, maybe you need to make that step of repentance today as well. Maybe you need to repent and say, God, you know what? That's me too. There's all the people I serve, all the people that I'm open to, all the people that I'm friendly with. But then there's the people that I really want to know you, that I really want to invite into your, to your house, to your people, to your family. I want to ask you by the spirit of God, by the conviction that he may be laying on your heart, nothing that I'm saying, but what you're hearing in the scriptures, what he's laying on your heart today, can you break that down and can you take a courageous step this week to invite someone to church with you? If that's the the simplest, smallest step you can take, get one of those cards and give it to someone who you'd put in that other category. Bring them with you. Invite them into God's family. Will you pray with me? I want to give you a moment to really respond to what we've seen in the scriptures. I want to ask you to just begin to cultivate a moment of quiet before God just listening to what he has to say to you. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song called Come to the Altar. It's kind of a religious-sounding word and might evoke in your mind images of big churches with an altar up front, but that's not really what it's about. The altar in this song is simply the place where we receive forgiveness for our sins from Jesus Christ. The altar is the cross on which Jesus hung and died. The altar is the empty tomb where Jesus declared by getting up and rising and walking away that sin and death and hell have no more power over us through his work. And so in this next song, as we sing this together, I actually want you to kind of leave behind all the application that we've looked at. Just kind of set that aside for a moment. I want you to come back to it later, but in this moment, I don't want you to think about who you're going to invite. I actually want you to reflect on the fact that you and I are those very ones that God has invited into his family. 
you and I are those who maybe the world looked at and said, eh, they don't have the right stuff. They're not the right kind of person. They're not beautiful enough or talented enough or rich enough. They're not from the right people. But God has welcomed you in. You were enough for him to die for. You were enough for him to go to the cross for. As we sing this song, you can think about all the other people that need to come to the altar, but will you just come to the altar of God's love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Father God, as we sing together, we worship you as the one who has welcomed us. In Jesus' name.